Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Imagined, a foresight podcast dedicated to future thinking. I'm Joe Lepore. I lead foresight for North America within the Mars Weekly Global Foresight Team. It's truly humbling to say that this episode wraps up 2021 for us. We have brought you three seasons, 20 episodes, 52 guests. Thank you to you, our audience, for listening throughout the year as we've traversed topics from the future of marketing to the future of mental wellness and even the future of big, complex markets like America. We've covered a lot, but perhaps haven't reflected on ourselves. So today we're ending truly with a bang. How else could we wrap up a podcast brought to you by Human Intelligence, our insights organization at Mars Wrigley? but to deep dive into what this function needs in order to continue to be bold, relevant, and to help the consumer goods space accelerate growth into the future. And perhaps most importantly, how do we make sure that insights functions continue to serve the consumer amidst constant external disruption to how we think and the evolution of the tools that we have always used? Our panel today has decades of experience in doing exactly that, in taking and transforming insights into action across not just CPG, but right through to media and creative. If you're in the insights industry wondering what disruption you should be thinking about for this decade, if you're a business leader wondering how we can make better decisions through insight, if you're in sales, perhaps wondering how data can better serve your customer partnership, if you're in marketing wondering if it's worthwhile making the move over to insights, hint, that's what I did then this episode is for you. So let's get into it. Welcome to our esteemed panel. My name is Sorin Patilina. People tell me that I'm a curious electrical engineer in love with advertising and always wanting to decode human decision-making. At Mars, I lead the marketing lab, a team that activates inside our insights function, purely at the intersection of three elements, human sciences, tech and data innovation, and deep business intimacy. We bring the outside in and the future back. And I'm very happy today to be on this panel together with my friend Jorge and I think my future friend, Nigel, to discuss the future of insights. George Reese here. I'm a dad first and a manager second. I'm very privileged and lucky to uh, lead the marketing sciences organization here at TikTok. And I've been very lucky to build from the ground up a team of well over 80 people across measurement, research, and data science. We're a new business, everything's very new, but I just, I generally want to build this culture of learning and that has to cut across insights of effectiveness across measurement, consumer insight, and consumer appeal on the research side. Nigel. Well, I am currently an independent brand marketing consultant. I've always been inquisitive about the way things work and why people do what they do. And prior to my current incarnation, I was the chief global brand analyst at Kantar. I don't take things at face value. I tend to take a little bit of a contrarian view, but unlike Surin, George, I tend to be the guy that's on the sidelines watching the players on the field <laughs> going, hmm, pass the ball. <laughs> I think you have to be that in insights in a way, that person in the sidelines that's quite objective. So I'm going to start with a little bit of an anecdote. A couple of years ago, I was in the very amusing situation of accidentally being included on an email from a very big data provider of ours who unknowingly referred to me when he commented to his team that they should run a piece of research just to, quote, get the monkeys off our backs. 
I was very amused, honestly, but it wasn't the first time that I had heard that saying in reference to the insights profession. We are consistent, persistent, and unequivocally driven to make decisions through evidence. Hence, we're obsessed, slightly annoyingly so, with data. As W. Edwards Deming famously said, in God we trust, all others must bring data. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that not all data leads to great business decisions and not all data is insightful. So that comment about the monkeys, while true and perhaps a necessary part of what we do in Insights, also reveals our weakness of excessive evidence searching. Nigel, data fuels insights teams. It gives us credibility, levity, confidence, but there is such a thing as too much research. When do we tip over from confident analysts to inertia-ridden doubters? Oh, what an excellent question. It's so difficult to predict when that's going to happen. I think the intriguing thing to me is you said evidence, and then you switched to data. And I think as soon as the data starts to box you in and you're responding to the data as a map, it's all too often it's going to limit you instead of allowing you to say, oh, maybe I want to be over there. I don't have the actual data on that, but there's a potential to transform the way things are. And I think that's all too often in Consumer Insights, we let the data box us in rather than being the platform that we use to sort of leap forward. It's almost like a comment about the inputs versus the outputs when it comes to data. George, I'd love to get your take on that. So what hinges on the success of data input versus data output? I've often found that those kind of requests are more about reporting and automation versus genuine discovery of insights. And that feels like when I do troubleshooting, it sounds like a client has a dashboard that broke or something that they want something on a repeated basis. And you can do that. I mean, it's not the most glorious thing, but separate what is true, genuine, inside, high quality, high complexity versus a reporting automation, which gets to the question of transparency. And we have to be clear with stakeholders on separating the notion of insights when it's about transparency and reporting. It may not be as glamorous in many cases, but we have to be aware of when our stakeholders need that transparency for what and just setting the expectations because... How many times do we get the question of like, I want to look at this big data to uncover this magical insight? It's like, uh, let's, let's maybe uh, break it down a little bit. But that's in my mind how I tend to break the, the issue down. Don't be afraid of saying no. Explain what the issue is. Try to uncover what they're going after. And if it's truly some sort of like data related thing, it's probably about automation or transparency. So when you say transparency and almost like reporting based on you're trying to get to a common truth, part of what's sort of cued in my head there is how much we rerun the same reporting or the same analysis that we've done a million times before. Serena, I'd love to get your take on that. Are we too reliant on evidence-based decision-making when we potentially already have the answers? You've hit me in my heart with, with this one. So, you know, I, I, I'm all in on evidence-based marketing. It is the religion I uh, I was raised to in Mars, in my 10 years at Mars. And uh, that is actually the flag that we are keep holding high. Our behavioral-based philosophy, our preference to understand consumers' behaviors, actions, and how they think, rather than what they tell us they will do in the future. In this day and age, I loved when Nigel mentioned the data boxes, and also when Jorge talked about the endless dashboards. We need to be curious. As insights leads, we need to be able to drive the change in the organization, to be able to tell our clients that, yes, that dashboard might have worked for you, but here is an additional data point that you haven't thought about. But 
that data point will never come from your marketing uh, partner because they have other tasks. It's up to you to improve even that basic dashboard. To do that, you need great business knowledge. That's what I found out. I mean, we too often restrict ourselves into a buyer of research, into a box of I'm the expert in buying the best focus group or the best questionnaire for you, while in fact we can be much, much more than that. And uh, this is exactly at the core of the transformation of the insight function in Mars. And uh, you've been very close to that, uh, Joe. I think, Serene, what you mentioned was a little bit about context. And I think context is so crucial when we're talking about gathering insights. And we often don't talk about business context. So either in how we're asking the question that we're trying to answer or in how we're framing a recommendation back to the business. So Nigel, how important is context in understanding what your business actually needs? Well, I think it's hugely important. It's almost impossible to make recommendations. All of the clients that I've worked with over the years, what they're looking for is your contribution. And you can only contribute as a consumer insights person, if you've got some understanding of what you're contributing to, which is the business side of things. Equally, it's not just about I'm buying the best moderator, I'm buying the best Vox Pops or whatever we're doing. It's a matter of making sure that it's relevant to the task at hand, that you're fairly confident that it's going to give you the right information to then apply it to the business. So the right information, I think, is really critical. How much of this then gets held back by the inertia of decision making? How much data do we sit on that we don't actually use because we lack confidence in proposing changes that need to happen? I think all too often in my career, which is a fairly lengthy one, the number of times that I've been involved in introducing a new methodology or approach that I genuinely believe is going to make a difference to a client business and the client has then gone, well, actually don't seem to be able to get the marketing team to use this. So um, let's go back to what we did before. Uh, And it's tremendously discouraging when that happens, but it's usually because you haven't found the right way of talking to the people who are your internal client. And that's kind of just as important as having a better technique is finding the right way of putting your findings across to people, making it relevant to them, helping them understand it and perhaps not using the jargon. Serena, I'd love to get your take on that. Being part of a big multinational company with many arms, how do you drive action and counter some of the inertia that tends to happen with, let's say, data overload? I'm a big believer that we have way too much data and that we can extract the gold nuggets from that data much easier. We don't need all that data. And to give you one example, 10 years ago, we've started using consumer panels to measure the effectiveness of our content, the effectiveness of TV advertising. And um, to make it very, very simple to the organization, we've derived a star rating that tells you what's the action you should take as a marketeer when you get the results of that research. So if you have one star, you need to immediately drop the content. If you have four star, keep it on air. If you have two stars, it depends. And out of a huge data set of people's behavior, channel watching, and all sorts of data points, millions of data points, the outcome of this research was just one, two, three, or four star. That's what they were getting. And this was enough to drive internal behavior in the organization. We've been challenged consistently by our data partners that were under leveraging their data. 
and that there's so much things we can do. But we were happy with the, the gold nuggets and that practice still is alive today in the organization. It's of course, it's moving in digital, but it's a great example of using only grains of knowledge from that data and basically not using 99% of all that big data. I love that example. I think it's a really great articulation of the Mars philosophy as well as we're so guided by our evidence-based principles and practices. And then we develop almost like a platform or a tool to enable us to really utilize that. I'd love to hear, George, how that works at an organization that has the perception of being much more experimental and moving at a much faster pace. Does that operate in a different way in TikTok? Well, just a couple of years old as TikTok in with the ads business. But also, if you think about in almost two years, we have to grow up very quickly in terms of how we build the practice, how we establish a measurement function, a research function. But also, we're so hungry to provide insights and quality information that we ourselves are trying to learn. And one thing I've tried to establish in the very beginning was we have a wealth of information and we have certainly many things at our disposal. And we're very lucky to have established good research practice. But I've tried to create a structure that says, let's try to learn or create some hypotheses for what we believe or what we need to understand ourselves. We did this together with the marketing and the business strategy team. We never did it ourselves. We want to have an understanding together. Never do it alone. So things like, what do we want to learn? Do we want to learn about TikTok and authenticity, about entertainment, about time we'll spend, about community commerce? These are all topics that in the very beginning, we had to really understand and really kind of push it seems to say, what do we want to learn about? And then we were very aggressive in trying to make sure that we got a lot of research published that, but making sure that it was understood that this was part of the broader strategy so that at the end of the day, my researchers never felt alone or isolated in producing research, but they felt that there was a specific strategy with a specific goal, with a specific output, with a specific contribution in mind. But I made it clear that just because that's the end goal, it's actually the beginning because Good research will always end with bigger questions. And that gets you excited because that then gets you to the next step. So we're just getting started. We have a little bit of a structure, but I want the teams to feel like there's plenty of things to learn because that's the thing that we want to know and we want our clients to really continue to know. I really like how you said hungry to provide insights. So what you mentioned before around creating a culture of learning, I think is incredibly powerful. Learning that's slightly more structured. So it's experiments that then lead to knowledge that you're essentially building inside of the organization that serve a purpose, but also then providing that same insight to your partners and the brands that you work with. So it's not just learning that's internally creating a positive cycle, but is also then reverberating out into the industry, which is fabulous. That for me makes me think about going back to that word experimentation. We know from research that's been done, Harvard Business Review is the one that comes to my mind is that overperforming companies are three times as likely as underperforming to embrace a culture of experimentation. I think that's linked into a culture of learning if you're using experimentation in the right way. So how do you build a culture of experimentation inside of an organization that's potentially quite traditional in the way that it operates? I think that's a really interesting question. And as you were talking, my mind actually leapt back to my early days at uh, Millwood Brown. And every week we used to just sit down around a table and talk about issues, challenges, problems that we had and collectively come up with a viewpoint on them. We often don't make enough time in big companies to get people together and talk through particular issues and problems just explore ideas. And I don't know what uh, Soren and George think about this, but 
maybe you've already created that space, but I think it's really important. And all too often in the course of business, it's tough to feel like you can allow people to do that. It's like, well, what did you achieve with that two-hour session? Maybe nothing, but maybe something. I think that's a great idea to have those experimentation sessions. They create that culture of experimentation that uh, Joe was so well talking about. And a culture that I believe we've built at Mars, uh, especially in the insights department. And to give you some under the hood how we've built that, we first needed a strong philosophy. Let's call it a religion. And for us, that religion was evidence-based behavioral uh, insights. Then we had strong support from our senior leaders. So basically our uh, de facto leader in marketing, the CMO at that time, was our, uh, our prime example of sponsor of building that philosophy and bringing the entire marketing organization behind that. And he was so good, Bruce McCall, that that culture continues to propagate. So once we had that behavioral philosophy, once we've identified the types of research that we want to do, we were almost over-indexing on uh, repeating and doing the same kind of experimentation, but always with a twist, changing the ending of that ad, changing the brand, changing the market, but making sure that we're still having comparable output because um, one of the artifacts of all that work was what we called key beliefs in Mars. And I'm not saying that this is something unique to Mars. I'm sure all other companies have something that they call key beliefs that guide their communication strategy. but I'm very proud that at Mars, we have thousands of data points that are evidence-based and that are replicated across markets, geographies, and segments. And that guide our strategies midterm, that guide our channel choice strategy when it comes to media, that guides our creative choices when it comes to different types of content. And without having years and years of replicating research, we would have not been able uh, to have that. But as I said, we're not the only ones. Others have it for sure. But the key beliefs are the best artifact of our, our culture of experimentation. I've seen so much of this in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, I'm a big believer in experiments, but I'm also a big believer that you can't have good experiments with good hypotheses. There's a totally different operational workflow when you have to do simple things like split tests and you have to be a direct response marketer. If it's my money, my budget, I'm going to test what I have to do to make sure I get my performance to get whatever it is. If we want to drive ROI or performance, it's a very specific mindset and very specific goals for that. But when it comes to high quality experimentation or you have big risk, big reward kind of experiments, there's a couple of components where you need to have teams that understand the culture, but also the guidance of the business around, are we looking for consistency or counterfactuals? For that, reproducibility is key. And then the other one is, how are we having the organization that has accountability and decision making as part of this? Because without that, no matter how high quality the work is, you're not going to have teams that take action or really kind of make the best decisions off of this. And that's why it shouldn't just be about the technical component or the insight component, but within the organization is how are they taking action? Sometimes I know it's just as important, but there has to be some follow through is we just learned this thing. Have we seen it before? Or is this a brand new risky thing we just discovered? Can we confirm it? Can we roll it out? Can we separate something different? But that's when we look at the other publications that talk about competitive businesses through experimentation, the baseline is high quality talent and high quality tools and systems. But if your cross-functional partners don't have that alignment on how to take action, that's a key difference. And that's what it's the responsibility of those technical experts to teach and bring that culture so that other partners can be like, oh, it's actually not that difficult. It's not that risky. 
And here is how we can actually perform together so that as, as one unit, we can make a decision. I just want to go back to one sort of critical question that I have for you, George, about data. Just going back to data again, because, you know, we're in insights. We're all about the data. And linking into what Sarin mentioned around behavioral philosophy or <laughs> behavioral religion. And here we're talking about things that are quite often science-based observations, so really observing people's behavior. And a quote from Plato really resonates with me in relation to this. You can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. So I feel like TikTok is a really great platform to be able to observe consumers in their, let's say, natural habitat. But we also know that so much of what we observe is curated and constructed and maybe not reflective of real life, which leads me to my question around quality of data. So how do we break apart what is useless data or true quality data that we should be leveraging to drive into action? You will be more successful with a good brief if you truly, truly know what you're after and you're trying to compartmentalize the challenge. If it starts with relying on the tool or the data, it's always going to be hard because then it's like a predefined assumption of I must get this insight from this thing, whether it's a panel, a TikTok, a survey, whatever it is. But I think that really trying to understand what is the right way of asking the question. And for example, I'm a big believer in mixed methods. I love in-lab neural panels. They're super interesting, but they have a purpose. Surveys have a purpose. Trending data has its purpose. Ad effectiveness data has its purpose. But I think that it's so crucial to really break down what we're trying to go after, and then determining what is the best way to get this information. Can you actually even accomplish that, given privacy and consumer expectations and the right way of ethically sourcing that data? And then the next one is, can this method of data collection be something that's reproducible and is it something that you feel that it can be like trusted? And is this something that you know that you can actually like rely on this on an ongoing basis? But it's always going to be case by case, and that's going to be the responsibility of each of the business stakeholders on how they want to approach it. I have to say, I totally agree. I think one of the fundamental issues that I see, particularly when it comes to using all the available data out there, because there is a ton of it these days. The biggest challenge is not just throwing tools at that data blindly, but recognizing that lots of data doesn't mean it's all valuable. And just because you found a pattern doesn't mean that that's an actual insight that you can do something transformative or useful with. And I do think that perhaps there are a lot of companies out there that are hyping analytic approaches beyond their current capabilities. And one of the challenges for consumer insights is to sort of go, oh, hold on a minute, let's just be clear about A, what are we trying to achieve? Do we have the data that allows us to achieve that objective? And do we have an analytic technique that will really help us get there? And then we might actually have to step away from the data like we were saying earlier and make a bit of a leap of faith and then experiment. So it's an iterative process. And that's exactly, I think, why you've seen the rise of experiments in the last 15 years. One thing I will say that's very important is when you're having this conversation with a client, be careful never to say it's an ugly baby. However it's sourced, <laughs> just, let, let's just be honest, let's just call it what it is. But if somebody gets it wrong and they came with an insight from some really weird database, whatever, it's okay. The point is, as a research professional, it's your job to bring structure from the unstructured. And if I see an analyst or a peer or somebody in my team says, hey, this whole thing's wrong, it's like, great, go fix it. It's so important that we recognize that this is a very difficult space where the people that want or input, we have to help them to understand and navigate that process. And it's important that that is the culture that we make sure people understand because everybody can highlight the problem, 
but it's our people that are the ones that are bringing the solutions. Yeah, I'm still torn about this idea of democratization of data. And I think this would be key for the insights function to solve in the future, because we live in a time that anyone with access to a browser or to Google Trends or TikTok Trends can generate insights. And I think it's a bit scary. I might be a bit defensive as an insight person, but I think there is a, there is something about the expertise that we bring. It's up to us to choose the right method and to juggle with those methods in order to turn that data into insights. We know that the most successful companies don't just have good products or strong distribution systems. They have a deep understanding of consumers. And it's sometimes said that no other function in a business is closer to the consumer than insights. And therefore, this is almost like the lifeblood of an organization. But at the same time, it's sometimes said that insights works in a silo in an organization. We're often a corner crunching data We're known to be quite introverted. We're behind glass walls, talking to focus groups. We're guiding business leaders behind closed boardroom doors or Zoom invites. How much of this is driven by a necessity for an insights team to be both deeply connected to the consumer and also to be objective and unbiased? Can these things coexist? They can. It also means when you are leading an organization, you have to put the most effort in ensuring that your managers build a culture for you. And it's a key distinction between if you're going to have a strong, high-performing organization. For me, my expectation of the teams that you're lucky to manage is you want your researchers and your insights and your measurement people to be not only close to like the ground truth, they have to investigate, they have to do the work, but they have to be with clients, they have to be with industry, they have to be externally facing. But here's the thing, they will not be successful if they do it alone. They have to do it together with sales. They have to do it together with marketing, with agencies, with peers. For example, one small piece of advice I always give my managers is, You're going to go and present publicly? Amazing. Don't do it alone. You have to be together with your peers so that you yourself set the tone as to what are you trying to communicate and how you're trying to get this insight across. And that means recognize that your peers have information overload. Your story has to be concise. Never show up alone. Have an ally who really understands you. Also, don't underemphasize the value of internal training. How do you want your other teams to recognize how you process information? Sometimes it's as simple as, Let's do some basic statistical testing one-on-one for brand lift. All right, here's what it means. The next time it's, what do we think about this great study on authenticity or time well spent or community commerce? How do you want the marketing team to understand this? And then just encourage diverse perspectives. Some of my most insightful folks I've been able to lucky to manage, they have amazing, odd, weird, quirky hobbies. They read things outside of work, but it's about diverse perspectives that you as a manager want to ensure that your team has that at the core. Yeah, brilliant. And I think one team that does that extremely well, Serene, is your team and particularly in being able to really truly partner with the marketers. And I think that starts with really understanding what their challenges are, what they deal with day in, day out, and helping them to overcome some of that. And Serene, as an engineer, (laughs) you would maybe know better than most of us that when you come in with a completely different knowledge base, you're coming into the insights field with a very fresh perspective of what you're seeing, how has that benefited you in coming into Insights? That's benefited me a lot because uh, I really feel that if we're talking about the role of the Insights function in the organization, I think the persona that we should strive towards is the alchemist. We want to be the ones that align departments together. So much in the past, we were just a support structure for marketing, let's face it. I mean, we were the ones who were supporting the marketing director and making the right decisions. 
with the trends of today, consumer understanding doesn't sit only in marketing. It sits in sales, it sits in finance, but none of those functions can get deep enough and can create those links. And I think we have a great opportunity to be that binding between those departments. For that, we need to become a uh, magnet for talent from finance, from sales, from marketing which I'm not sure we we are. We'd love to be in that stage. I'm not talking about here about Mars, but I'm talking here about, I think, in the entire insights industry. I think there is a mix of engineers and a mix of data analysts and a mix of uh, business folks. But it's very rare that you have a finance director that decides to become an insights person or a sales director that tries to lead a, an insights department. I would love to see that in the future. Yeah, definitely. So Nigel, what is the future of an insights person if you're wanting to stay in that field? Does it offer you the same kind of future growth career potential as other fields? I think there's incredible potential for people to grow in insights today more than ever. But whether you can achieve that potential kind of goes back to all of the things that we've been talking about. And it's the art of looking for the possible rather than being fixated on what's most likely. (laughs) It's like, okay, can we make this work? What do we need to do to make this work? So I think it's really exciting. We mentioned Google Trends. When I started work, it was like, that would be manna from heaven to be able to look at the way people are searching for specific topics over time would have been incredibly useful to some of the projects I was working on but it just wasn't available. And yes, there are issues with it and you need to bear in mind how you're using it, whether it makes sense in the context of the business, how people are actually using it as the individual. But I think there is a ton of potential to grow, to develop the discipline and so on. You touched on something there, the art of looking for the possible. And I know that before you've said to me something that's quite powerful, which is acceptance that some things can't be answered. Both of those statements for me are something that would come from a marketing person or someone from a different field than someone that lives and breathes data and evidence every single day. So for someone that's inside of insights or maybe thinking about coming into insights that has that sort of more creative, imaginative type of mindset, how do they overcome the rigidity of insights? I'm very tempted to give the answer that Calvin Coolidge said that persistence was the key to everything because creative people aren't necessarily successful. It's the person that persists. If they've got an idea and they're willing to champion it within the organization, then they're highly likely to succeed in the long run. Unfortunately, we don't value things like persistence quite as much as we should do. Agree. And George, I'd love to get your take on this as well, because you've worked at Ogilvy and made your way over into TikTok. So you've got a slightly more exciting, for some people, it's more exciting for me, sort of journey through insights. What do you see as being the potential for insights professionals? I look at my career, I've been very blessed and very lucky for the people I have been coaches and allies to help me get where I am. Part of it is also like the value of being an effective communicator the role of marketing communications in a business and looking at the long term. As we've moved into digital, everything is becoming more short term. But I think like having good careers from insights can allow you to do a couple of things. You can be a subject matter expert. You can be an effective collaborator. You can be a resource gatherer or you can actually graduate or you can have a jungle gym career that allows you to be even more powerful in other roles. When you are actually able to understand the discipline and the structure of research, 
It helps you become very influential in terms of how you're shaping those decisions. You have to have a very good argument or debate as to why you're shaping that discussion and as to why you're making that decision. And it's these kinds of people, whether it's measurement, research, or data science, that are often the subject matter experts. But if you want to have a high-performing career or you really want to be in a place to where you want to drive those decisions, effective communications is something that really is like a competitive difference. At the end of the day, it's a way that you can build really amazing careers for people. And you touched on something else there that I really love, which is, you know, balancing the long-term with the short-term. And I think a lot more companies now are thinking much more long-term. They have foresight teams that they're putting in place, which is obviously fantastic. But also I think that focus on short-term and almost like respecting short-term results for what they are and what they can provide for you is really important. And now with the introduction of real-time data and AI into data analysis, there's a lot more opportunity to think about the short-term in a more robust way. My take on it, Serena, I'd love to hear if you disagree. I wanted us to get to a point where we disagree. It was almost feeling like we said yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine a world without the insights department. And I tried to see what would that world be. When it comes to the short term, I don't think that short term, there won't be any visible impact on the organizations. I think let's imagine for a, for a while that the IT department runs the customer understanding or the insights generation. What will happen? You will end up challenging beliefs and challenging strategy every week or every time some new data is uploaded to the data lake. If marketing would be the sole responsible for customer understanding, uh, you will change that campaign every single day because there is a new data point or because the agency got tired of the last one. And this can go on forever and ever. So I do believe that the insights function is here to ensure that even though this short-term impact on the organization is not visible, there is a long-term impact, which is just getting all ducks in a row and allowing you to build a strategy that has consumers at the center and it's looking beyond the year one. Joe, you made an interesting comment, which is that companies are getting more long-term in their thinking. And sitting on the sidelines, it's like, I'm not entirely sure that's the case. And I do worry that the promise of some of the machine learning and neural networks and artificial intelligence and so on. I mean, it's amazing. It offers a scale that we could never have achieved before. Granularity, speed, all of those things. But that, in a way, makes it very difficult to ignore some of the things that evolve over much longer timeframes. And one of the things that I do worry about is that we're not paying enough attention to the things that drive long-term business success. I think the big companies of this world, like Amaz, are, but there are many companies out there that are not, and they're solely focused on manipulating things in the moment when they should be taking a step back and saying, okay, this is how things are, but the real challenge is how do I change them in the favor of my company? And that's where the real insight comes in. One of the things I was very lucky early in my career is even though I worked at Ogilvy, I actually ended up doing a lot of direct response advertising. So ever since year one in my career, there's always been this conversation I've had with clients, which is it's a direct marketer's dilemma. You can be ROI rich, but you can be revenue poor. I remember when I was doing direct mail back in the day, the same exact issue happened. As a business, you have to be judicious and responsible for the financial responsibility of the business. But what ends up happening is when you're running campaigns or you're getting asked to run insights, sometimes the pursuit is, I want to have the most ROI. Okay, great. But how do I grow? And that's the question of like, well, you need to have good insights teams to help balance that out. Because first, 
you need to optimize the campaign, you need to have a strong ROI, and you have the fundamentals to continue getting that investment. Then you'll debate as to what is the right placement mix, media mix, whatever it is. The right question is, how do I grow? How do I sustain that effectiveness? And what do I do to be different? That's a question of like, am I different? Am I salient? Am I meaningful? Uh, that's a plug for you, Nigel. Um, <laughs> uh, I've done my homework. Um, <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> but that is the right hard question. And this is where I think the insights team, the measurement teams are so crucial because if you're just asking the question is, how can I optimize? Fine. Everybody, heads down. Let's get to work. That you can accomplish. What few teams get right is the question of how do I grow? And that's when you'll find real talent, but it's something you have to do together as a team. Well, I can only agree with that viewpoint. <laughs> George, you're not providing fodder for us to argue over. <laughs> All right. Well, I might have one final question that will send us into a debate, potentially. It is often said that insights professionals are introverted. I would say from this group that I would say are also incredibly creative and incredibly imaginative and willing to challenge ourselves, which is wonderful to hear. When we were recruiting talent for this episode, of course, we went to some of the very best and highly regarded talent in the industry. So thank you so much for being a part of the episode. And some of you are renowned authors and public speakers and writers of their own blog, serenp.com, Engineering Marketing. Please check it out. Also, obviously, we have this podcast, so we're sort of getting out there and we're trying to create more of a presence and bring our thought leadership into the industry, create more collaboration externally. However, it's not often you would say that insights people are rock stars. We are more so the enablers of other people inside of the organization to be rock stars. So does that need to change? Do we need to, in the future, become the rock stars or is that not our role? Oh, that is such a difficult question. Say yes. Say yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I don't regard myself as an extrovert. I kind of push myself out there, but instinctively I'm an introvert. And someone once accused me of being the eminol scree, you know, so the grey guy in the background that's sort of manipulating the CEO. And maybe that's not a bad place to be if you are influencing the decision makers in a way that's effective. So do you need to be a rock star? Maybe not. Yeah, I think you should start a band. You should not be just a solo rock star. Georges said it uh, very nicely, I think, in the middle of this conversation that you can be on stage, but make sure you bring your marketing or your sales or your uh, finance partner with you because then you build a brand. And I think there is an unknown stat that bands last longer than solo singers. So be a rock band. No egos. Let's just call it what it is. It's like, yes, would be great. But whether you're research or marketing or sales, this is all a collective effort because we're operating in a business and we have really good opportunities to thrive. But at the end of the day, nobody can do it themselves. Nobody can do it alone. As research professionals, we bring a certain very valued point of view, but we can only be as powerful as the other stakeholders that we work with. And that's why just do it as a team, have a rock band, sell lots of platinum albums, and retire somewhere in England. Nigel, George, and Sarin all touched on an incredibly important directive for the insights industry in building a culture of learning. And hopefully, if you're listening to that, that resonates with you, even if you're sitting in a different function. 
Nigel talked about being inquisitive, and that's what we in our Foresight team and throughout this podcast have been calling curiosity. And it wouldn't be a fitting end to our last episode of 2021 if we didn't bring back the full Foresight team to help me wrap it up. So hello, team. Hey, it's Leanne again. I'm the Foresight Lead for China. Hi, I'm Sandeep. I'm the Foresight Lead for Emerging Markets. As uh, all of you will know, I am the host with the consistent narcissistic streak. Hi, I'm Sophie. I'm the Foresight Lead for Europe. Over the 20 episodes that we've done this year, there have been so many great guests and we've covered a pretty broad range of topics. So Sandeep, what's been your favorite episode? Me being me, I'll obviously pick one of my episodes. I was really a fan of the Future of Emerging Markets episode. And the reason for that is some of the discussion we had with Blas and the external guests were absolutely fantastic when we spoke about the nuances of the region, how DCOM is uh, going to be 20% of our region is fairly counterintuitive, how every company in the future is either likely to be a healthcare or a technology player. So I think some of the conversations were really fantastic that we had in the episode. My favorite episode is the one that I host for the first time. I'm so excited about the topic because it's my personal interest to talk about East and West. I think before I join the conversation, I can point a lot of differences between the two big regions. But then after talking to Martin and JD, I realized that there is actually a lot of commonalities. So it gives me a new perspective after talking to the two guests. I think that's something for me that has happened in every episode. I have come away from every single episode of Future Imagined with a different perspective on something, something that I've learned, something that's made me think differently about something that's in the future or the way that we should be thinking about things. For me, the one that stood out was the Macro Futures episode with Jake and Faith. One thing that Jake said that really spoke to me was that the future doesn't exist. There are always multiple possible futures that are always in flux. That idea of challenging the conventional wisdom that there is only one possible future and we have to define exactly what that means and move towards it was something that I think is hugely important for the future of insights. Going back to our episode today, where we're heading as a function is really about creating those alternative future scenarios and making the business sit up and listen to what that complexity could look like and how we make that simple for the business to understand and act upon. What about you, Joe? Because you have been hosting so many different episodes and talking to so many bright and brilliant minds. What is your key take um, from this year? I've had the privilege of speaking to so many brilliant people and I've had so many aha moments myself in either learning something new about a topic actually finding commonalities or the links that I didn't realize existed, or even just hearing someone articulate a thought that I had in a really succinct and powerful way. So throughout the year, I think one thing that, that really stood out for me was when we spoke with Billy Jones from BBDO. I mean, Billy's like a creative guy and he was the one that said, you know, I don't know about AR and whether that's going to actually stick around. You know, we've been talking about this for a really long time. I just thought that was amazing that he could confront reality in that way. And, you know, when we're talking about a really exciting possible future, sometimes we get caught up in feeling like they're all going to eventuate. So just facing them with a pragmatism, I thought was really refreshing. And then the other one that I, I really loved was in season two, actually, Sophie, the episode that you hosted with mind, body, mood as the topic and Manish and the way that Manish from PepsiCo was talking to how the evolution of wellness for people is evolving and how it's starting to capture 
things like mental well-being and mood management and taking care of our emotional selves. I thought that that was really powerful, particularly coming from PepsiCo and another big CPG company. Being a host, I think one of the hardest things is to keep the length of the conversation manageable because there's so many occasions that we wanted to like keep on talking, ask more <laughs> questions, but we know that like we can't take it for too long. So kudos to you, Joe, really. Oh, well, that last conversation that we had, Leanne, with GDN Martin was a great example of that. I think we could have spoken for hours and it was actually very similar to the episode that you, the listener, had just listened to with Nigel George and Sarin. I feel like that conversation could have gone on for ages and that's probably one of my highlights from season three is talking about the future of our industry, the industry that we operate in and the industry that we're trying to highlight within this podcast and in particular something that Nigel touched on, which was that it's the science behind the evidence that gives us credibility, but it's the art behind the imagination that pushes us to look for what's possible. Thank you so much, everyone. Hope you have enjoyed our episodes so far and looking forward to meet you after this holiday season. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us and especially to my voice. I promise you as we come back next year that I intend to be less narcissistic. I'm not sure if I can live up to it, but that's an honest promise I am going to make. Thank you for being with us on the journey of Future Imagined in 2021. Wishing all of our listeners a fantastic holiday season and a wonderful 2022. And this is Joe on behalf of all of us. Thank you for listening. We will see you in 2022. Until then, stay safe and stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjares, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. <laughs>